0: Let's pray. Father, as the song said, show us Christ. Please, Father, through the preaching of Your Word, help us, change us, The deepest parts of us. Make us more like your Son. Raise the dead. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I might now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. We're going to be looking at verses 9 and 10 this morning. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I might now at last succeed in coming to you. Now, Paul is thankful. We looked at this last week, right? He's thankful for these Christians. Even though he hasn't met them, he hasn't gone to Rome yet, he hasn't had the pleasure of meeting them face to face, his joy is full as he thinks about them. Why? Because their faith is proclaimed in all the world. He is grateful, not just for what they've preached, but how they've lived. Because if we preach, but don't live like Jesus, what is that called? Hypocrisy. But if we think we can just have friendship evangelism and just you know, be good moral people and people will just see our moral lives and that will make them become Christians, that's not the gospel. That's not Christianity and no one will be saved by you being a very nice neighbor. Paul was thankful that they had both lips and life and they were faithful in spite of the persecution and tribulation that they constantly faced. He prayed for these Christians often, regularly, earnestly, With thanksgiving in his heart. And the challenge of last week was, right, what, what are we known for? What are we famous for? What are we impacting? Are you impacting the world around you for Christ, with light, for eternity, with the gospel? Now, Paul could have continued down that avenue, talking about the necessity of life and lip, He could have talked about the need to be consistent. He could have talked about the need of having more right doctrine and right living. But Paul doesn't go down that avenue. He continues to express his gratitude for these Christians. He continues to talk about his love for them, his desire for them, how much he wanted to see them, how much he prayed for them. And that, and that struck me. How do you approach the issue of encouragement toward others? I mean, isn't it true that we can be so negative sometimes when we talk about other Christians or we get together and we fellowship? The conversation can become problem after problem after problem. But Paul lays out this wonderful example of he continues going with encouraging, thoughtful prayerful gratitude for these saints he already said he was thankful he already gave us a reason and we could say okay let's move on paul but he doesn't (laughs) he's not done yet before he gets to the gospel and laying out all the beauties of it he's going to keep going and it wasn't just paul's idea remember this is the spirit of god leading this man to write these things He does something very interesting. He doesn't just come out and say, Brothers and sisters, I pray for you a lot. He doesn't even say, Everyone who knows me can attest to how much you're in my prayers. If you were on trial for your life, for your life, and the only thing that would save you was a character witness, you had one witness to call, who would you call? Maybe your spouse, maybe your parents, maybe your children, your best friend. I mean, you would want it to be someone who knows you very well, but also has great character, right? Because if you call your best friend, but they're a known liar, that's not going to help you (laughs) if you call them as a witness. And likewise, if you call someone who's just extremely holy and righteous, but they don't know you, once again, that's not helpful. Who would you call as a witness? Children, I love talking to the children here. Paul would do that. Jesus did that. Okay, have you ever been in an argument, maybe with your sibling or someone else, and you're trying to convince them that what you're saying is true? Right? They're trying to convince you. You're trying to convince them. Has that ever happened, children? And, you're, and what do you do when you're in that situation? Well, you, you start giving proof and evidence and reasons why they should believe what you're saying is true. But what happens when you just come to a a roadblock? Now, in our home, there's one thing that can just end it all. When someone says, Daddy's right there, you can ask him. All right, case closed. I mean, right? He just appealed to Daddy. Or, you know what? Let's go ask Mommy because she's going to confirm. Children may not say confirm. Mommy is going to say the same thing that I'm saying. Now, why would children do that? Because they say, this is the highest authority in this house that I can think of who will testify to what I'm saying. They know us. They know the situation. Let's go get them. Paul says, for God is my witness. Interesting phrase. The word he uses is actually a very popular word, a word that you all know and you use. This witness is not just someone who saw something from afar. This word for witness is deep and meaningful. Now, if you've heard me enough, you know I don't quote the Greek word. I don't think it's necessary. I'll tell you what it means, but the word itself, not so much. But here, it's important. It's the word martyrs. Now, what does that sound like? Martyr. It's the word for martyr. It's where we get the word martyr. And this is one who has information, knowledge of something, and can bring light or confirm something. It, it does not. It, it doesn't mean someone who's just a spectator, but someone who has deep and intimate knowledge of what's being said, and they don't change their testimony even if it costs them their life. They're so certain. They're so convinced. They're so. They have such an experience with what they are testifying and witnessing that even if it means torture and death, they don't change their story. That's why that term became. What we call the brothers and sisters who die rather than deny Christ. A martyr. Paul's literally saying, God is my martyr. God is my witness. Think of a football game. It's Texas, right? I mean, football. Any sport would do. You think of your favorite sport. You have two groups. You have the audience, they're watching the game, they're observing the game, they're enjoying the game. But then you have the players. Then you have the team itself, and that's a very different experience. That's what this word means. These witnesses are not just people watching things happen. They are in the game. They're testifying to what they know, what they've seen, what they have done. It's deeply meaningful and personal and impactful. Paul says, God is my witness, He doesn't call Timothy or Titus or Barnabas. He calls God himself as witness. Why? Because God truly knows Paul. He knows the situation. He knows his heart. He knows his life. He knows everything. The Lord God Almighty is the only witness who sees everything. I call this message, God is your witness. God is the only witness who knows all things. Psalm 139, starting with verse 1, says this. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Before you say anything, God knows it. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? It's not just that God knows everything. He knows your thoughts from afar. He knows your words before you say it. But He's also present. He sees everything. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. who sees everything. He's also the only witness that cannot lie, never lied, and will not lie. Numbers 23.19, God is not man that He should lie, or son of man that He should change His mind. Has He said it and will He not do it? Or has He spoken and will He not fulfill it? Hebrews 6.18 So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God is not a man that he should lie. It is impossible for God to lie. And Titus 1 uh, verse 2 says, um, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began behold the greatest of all witnesses the God who sees everything who knows everything who knows you intimately deeply in and out front to back all sides and he does not lie and will not lie what God testifies is true God is the greatest witness Now, Paul is making a point, and he's going to get to what God is a witness to. But I just want to take a pause to focus on the fact that God is a witness. I think there's instruction there for us. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. God is your witness, and he sees everything that you do. He hears everything that you say. He knows everything that you think you say, why is that encouraging? Because if you are a Christian, your heart's desire is Him. He sees when you turn away from temptation and no one else sees it. He sees it. He hears the deepest longing of your soul that you desire to be like Him, even though no one else may know that. He knows your inward thoughts and intentions. He sees how you help others and don't get appreciated for it. He hears how others speak to you when you're seeking to honor him and be a help. Whole correction thing. He sees how you navigate those waters. And children, your parents may not see all the good that you do, but guess what? The Lord is your witness. He sees when you clean up that mess that wasn't yours. He sees when you try to make peace with your siblings. He sees when you try to honor what your parents have said, even when they're not around. God is your witness. He hears when you pray. He sees when you give to others. He knows not only what you're doing, but He also knows why. He knows the motive of your heart. He knows the intention of your thoughts. Sisters, He sees the thousand little things that you do every single day for your husband, for your children, that no one else sees you know what? The Lord is very interested in your motives. He's very interested in your heart, in your reasons. He's very interested even more so than the results. Romans 2.15 says they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day. When according to my gospel, listen, God judges the secrets of men. By Christ Jesus. The secrets of men. Why did you do that? Where was your heart at? What was really going on inside? That's what God is going to be judging by Christ Jesus. The truth of the matter. Because an exterior is one thing, but the inward is what matters most. Where is your heart at? And what I'm saying is, brothers and sisters, as you desire to live for the Lord and you press on in righteousness and holiness, God is a witness to it. He does not lie. He cannot lie. And he sees everything. Nothing is missed. May that be an encouragement to you as you continue to press on and go unnoticed by many. Think of Moses. We could say he was a terrible leader. Look at all of his followers. The majority of the people who followed him perished, rebelled. He say he was a terrible leader, but God didn't think so. God was pleased with Moses. Or Jeremiah. I mean, would he be a wonderful preacher? Look at all the people he preached to. None of them listened to him. They didn't repent. And yet the Lord was pleased with Jeremiah. Why? Because their hearts, their intentions, their thoughts, their efforts were all for him, regardless of the results. And God sees that. He's a witness. He knows what you're going through. Think of Hebrews 4.12 about the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and listen, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Even the word of God goes to the very intentions of the thoughts and heart. This is what God is interested in. Remember, here is Samuel before all the, the sons of Jesse. And what does God say to him? The Lord said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on what? On the heart. God is a witness to your heart, Christian. He's a witness to your thoughts. He's a witness to your motives, to your reasons, as well as your life, what you do and what you don't do. But even deeper than that, he looks into the very core of who you are and why you do what you do. Because what good is it if we honor him with our lips, but our heart is far from him? Now, I don't know your heart and you don't know mine, but the Lord does. Psalm 26, two, prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. David did not say, test my heart with fear and trembling. He said it with joy because he wanted God. He wanted to serve Him and worship Him and honor Him. And of course, Psalm 139 was quoted earlier today. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, the deeds are tested by the heart, but the motive by the intention. How many people may misunderstand your actions, misinterpret your your, your, your deeds, and maybe even attack you for what you've done. And we want to be careful to not let our good be spoken evil of, but be of good cheer, brothers and sisters. God is your witness. He knows, He sees, He will vindicate you. And isn't this what Jesus was preaching in the Sermon on the Mount? When He said, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be how? In secret, and your Father who sees how? in secret will reward you he sees he sees Matthew 6:6 6, 6, when you pray go into your room shut the door pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you Matthew 6:17 when you fast anoint your head wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your father who is in secret And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You think Jesus is trying to get a point across by the repetition? God is in secret. He sees in secret. And what you do in secret, the Lord knows and He will vindicate you. He will reward you. Even if everyone else doesn't see it, doesn't recognize it, doesn't appreciate it. God is your witness. Be of good cheer. Your reward is coming. Remain faithful. But every coin has two sides, doesn't it? The same God who sees all the good that is done by His people, He also sees the evil that is done as well. He hears the inward thoughts of jealousy and covetousness. He sees the way you look at that brother or that sister. He knows why you speak or don't speak to someone. He is very much aware of your reasons and your motives for every single thing that you do. If you were called to the judge's bench and the Lord God omnipotent came forward as the witness, what would He say about you? What would He say you think about most? What would He say you spend your time doing What do you say you really are when no one's watching? In fact, that statement itself isn't even true, right? Children, who's always watching? God. God is always watching. He always sees. The point is, He is your witness. And the things that you think are hidden, guess what? They're not hidden from Him. The things you think that you got away with that nobody saw, He saw you. He watched you. His wrath is waiting. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lion has teeth and claws for his enemies. But again, be of good cheer because there's good news. Even though he knows every thought and every deed and every word and every action of your life, he still says, come to me for forgiveness. He still says, come to me. I know what you are. I know what you've done. I know how foul you are. They don't. I do, and I still will forgive you. I still will wash you. I still will transform you and cleanse you by the blood of my Son. God is your witness. He is here now, watching, listening, judging. He is present among us. Paul said that God is my witness. Then he does something very common. Paul does this often he takes a break from his point and breaks off into praise he puts a a, a comma right for god is my witness comma whom i serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son comma that without ceasing i mention you without the praise break his statement is this for god is my witness that without ceasing i mention you always in my prayers that's his thought. But as he begins to talk about this witness, as he begins to talk about this martyr, as he begins to talk about this great God, he can't help himself and he breaks off into whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son. Have you ever been eating something that is so good that as you're talking to someone, you, you just can't continue your speech. You just have to comment on how good the food is has that ever happened to you like you're talking to someone really important over a meal and oh it's very professional and yes you know i think this is going to be that and you then you put the food in your mouth and you're like oh wait hold on wait wow this is you got to try this i mean does that ever happen to you it's like everything you were talking about has to take a pause because this is just so good like what kind of supernatural gift is responsible for this that's what Paul is doing here. He's talking to them about how much he appreciates them. But the very thought of his God causes him to burst out in praise. I have an embarrassing confession to make. Uh, in San Antonio years ago, my wife will remember this, maybe not my children. Uh, I was trying to be a good husband, trying to water the lawn, turn the, the, the water on full blast. And we had one of those attachments that you spray and so I, you know, I watered the lawn, and then in typical Tawfiq fashion, I forgot that I had turned the water on and left and went inside and went to bed. And I woke up in the morning, I went outside, and um, the hose had this huge bubble on it that was spraying water everywhere. Well, what happened? The pressure had built up so much that it just could not stay in. It had to come out, and it found its escape somewhere. That's what Paul is doing. He is so amazed by who God is and what he's done that he just the mention of this God, who is his witness of everything that he is and everything that he's done just causes him to just burst out in this praise. Now, be honest, when you look at those few words, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, does that sound Like this huge bursting out of praise and worship. It didn't to me. It just sounded like, oh, I guess he's just making a statement here. But this is glorious, y'all. This is glorious. So he says, For God is my witness, whom, so he's still talking about God, whom I serve. Let's stop right there. Whom I serve. What is this word? This is the word for worship. But when this word serve is used in the New Testament, it's not just any kind of service. There are different words for serve. This word is always for religious worship unto God. Sometimes the true God, some a false God, but it always has this mindset of unto God. A few examples of this, 1 Samuel 7.3. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. That's our word. Worship him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. The most popular Example of this is from the lips of Christ Himself. Remember, Jesus is in the wilderness. The devil has come to tempt Him. He's been tempting Him for 40 days and 40 nights, and we just get the last three of these temptations. And the final temptation is, again, the devil took Him to a very high mountain, showed Him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and said to Him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship Me. Which is interesting because one word for worship is to fall down and the other word for worship is this word serve. So basically what the devil said to him, I will give you all this if you worship me and worship me. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This is our word. Worship. What is this service? This is the service that comes from a heart that is fully convinced of the worth of the Lord. This is the service that comes from knowing how great He really is. This is the service that comes from understanding who He is and is amazed by it. I mean, are you amazed by who He is and what He's done When you think about him and all of his attributes, when you think about his works, not just creation, but his work in your own life, his work in church history, his work in eternity that we see a glimpse into when you read Revelation, are you just blown away by who he is and what he's done, that that causes your heart to spring forth in service and worship? This isn't A waiter serving people to get a good tip. That's not this service. Think of the soldier in World War II who serves his country with everything that he has and gives his life. Think of the starving mother who holds the infant to her chest as she gives the last bit of strength and energy so that that child can live as she dies. This is the kind of service that we're talking about. Deep, meaningful, everything in you, giving it to this one cause and this one purpose. And Paul says, for God, who is my witness, whom I serve, whom I worship. This is the service that Paul spoke about in Acts 26. Verse five, they have known for a long time, this is Paul speaking, if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain and get it as they earnestly worship, serve night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Have you believed the lie that worship is music? That worship begins when the song starts and it ends when the lyrics are complete? Have we believed the lie that worship is just relegated to this one area of life when we are commanded to worship the Lord our God with all of our lives and everything we have and we're not singing 24 hours a day? And if worship is just song, then most of your life you're not worshiping. Worship is so much more than that. It is service, full, total, complete, absolute, dedicated service. And then he says, whom I serve where? In my spirit. What is that? What does that mean? What does he mean by spirit? This is the The power by which a human being feels, thinks, wills, decides. In fact, it can be said that your spirit is you. It is everything that you are it's your heart, it's your mind, it's your will, it's your emotions, it's your desires, it's your treasures, it's your body, it's all that you are. So what Paul is saying as he thinks about God is my witness and then he says, whom I worship with everything that I am, down to the smallest molecule. I give him everything that I am. That's what Paul just breaks out and does. Cuz he's blown away. I Man, can you hear the water spraying everywhere now? This God that Paul was talking about was his God. Remember, he said, my God, he said it earlier. God was not a theory to him. God was not a thing or an it. He wasn't the man upstairs or the big man over there. He wasn't just God in a theory or cloud. No, God was personal. He was everything. He loved him. He loved God. And he served him with every single molecule of his being. He was his very life and breath and everything. Like we sang, all I ever need is found in thee. It's so easy to sing that, but do we live it? Is that your life? Is that your testimony? Are you impacted? Are you impressed? Are you blown away? Are you moved? Are you amazed by his glory and his person as you think about him? Paul was. You got to think of the, of the comparison, the contrast, uh, the religions of Paul's day, just like the religions of our day. Oh, they did many things. They had rituals and they had routines and they had practices and sacrifices and all of it. But how did they worship? Was it from the spirit? Was it from everything that they are or wasn't it just duty? Last week, Reformation Day, Uh, We remember the great work that God did in that German monk. What was his name? Martin Luther, right? Well, remember, Martin Luther was a very faithful and diligent monk seeking to have relationship and peace with God through his religious activities. Listen to what he said about worshiping God, not from the Spirit, Not from everything that he was because of a love for who God was. He says, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that anything that I thought or did or prayed satisfied God. You think you could worship God with all of your spirit and being if that is your mindset? If that's the relationship? He said, I had hoped I might find peace of conscience with fasts, prayer, and the vigils with which I miserably afflicted my body. But the more I sweated it out like this, the less peace and tranquility I knew. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't have any of that. He said, I almost fasted myself to death for again and again I went for three days without taking a drop of water or a morsel of food. While I was a monk, I no sooner felt assailed by any temptation than I cried out, I am lost. Immediately I had recourse to a thousand methods to stifle the cries of my conscience. I went every day to confession, but that was of no use to me. And then finally he says, then bowed down by sorrow, I tortured myself by the multitude of my thoughts. Look! Look! exclaimed I. Thou art still envious, impatient, passionate. It profiteth thee nothing, O wretched man, to have entered this sacred order. That's man-made religion. That's Islam. That's Hinduism. That's Buddhism. That's every other man-made religion effort to try to please God. It's empty. And they worship and they serve, but it's not from love. It's not from the soul. It's not from the spirit. It's not from being impressed with who God is and being amazed by His His glory and His love and His beauty. It's not being captivated by Him. It's all routine and ritual and law, and they're seeking to try to build up. Is that what you're in? What a prison. It wasn't until the Lord found Luther that Luther found joy. There's no breaking forth in praise and worship to God in that kind of system. How do you worship? How do you serve God? Do you serve Him with the mind only, but not your body? Do you serve Him with your emotions, but not your mind? Or does He get your mind, but no emotions? I'm not emotional. Does He get your attention when things are bad? But not so much when things are going well. How do you serve Him? With passion? With fervor? Children, do you serve Him with your youth? Those who have silver hair, do you serve Him with your old age? Do you serve Him with your family? Do you serve Him with your job? Do you serve Him with your money? Do you serve Him with your time? The question of all questions in this issue is this. What is He worthy of to you? Give Him that. Because remember, worship, it had these, this element of these ships that were filled with treasures and jewels and things, and these ships would be going to someone based upon what they were worth, worth ship. So as you load up the ship of your life, what's on it? What do you bring to God in worship? It's all going to be based upon what you say he's worthy of. What is he worth to you? If God is worthy of your emotions, then worship Him with your emotions. If God is worthy of your time, then worship Him with your time. With every second of your life. Is there any area of your life that you don't think He's worthy of? Is there any place in your heart, in your entertainment, in your family, in your leisure, in your job, in your finances, in your dreams that you don't worship him with. Jesus taught us the only proper way to think about worshiping God. Matthew 13:44 The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his Joy, he sells all that he has. Why? So that he might buy that field. What does this communicate? He's worth more than everything I have combined. Everything that I've worked my whole life in. He tells the parable after that about the, the one who's a fine merchant of pearls, who was an expert at pearls. He spent his life collecting pearls, but then he finds one pearl of great price. And he says, this pearl is worth more than my life's work. I'll sell it all to have that. I want this treasure, and I'll sell everything that I have, not begrudgingly, not with a sad face, not with tears rolling down my eyes, but with joy. Why? Because he's impressed. Are you impressed with him? Does he still amaze you? Does he still capture you? You Sometimes in, in marriage they talk about the honeymoon phase. You know, and you're like, oh, we're dating or we're courting and we're newlyweds. Like, oh, I can do that. But then as life gets hard and you kind of like, you see each other, hey, what's up? It's like, that's not how it's supposed to be, right? Like, you want to continue to kindle that fire. Well, the reality is sometimes in Christianity, you're a new believer and it's like everything is God. Like that song, you know, everything that I think I see becomes a tootsie roll to me. Like everywhere you look, you see Him. He's everywhere. He's in everything. You see a flower and you think, look at the genius of God. Look at how he made this. It's beautiful, the texture, the smell, the color, the diversity. Lord, you did this and you put it here for me to see it, to worship you. Thank you. Like you could spend an hour just focusing on a glass of water. Lord, you did this. You created water. Wow, you're blown away. But as you continue to walk with him, Do you know that the disciples, when they heard the women saying that Christ had risen from the dead, remember what they said? These sound like what? Silly myths. Wives' fables. How do you go from being amazed by everything Jesus says to saying this sounds like myth? The same thing can happen to us. We can cease being impressed by Him. Paul was blown away and captivated by God. Now, what? What could make Paul, what could make anybody so committed that they say, everything I have and everything I am and everything I do is for you? What could convince him? What could make anyone surrender their will and emotions and their life for God? Well, what did it for Paul? Look at the next words. For God is my witness. Whom I serve with my spirit in what? In the gospel of his son. There it is. There it is. The good news of Jesus Christ was all that Paul needed to give everything to the Lord. I worship you with everything that I am. Why? Because of the gospel of your son. I am blown away that you, the perfect and infinite one, would send your son to die for me, for me, for the likes of you. He would send his son. His son would obey the law and suffer the wrath of God. Me and my wife this morning, we were on the way here. We were just reflecting on what Paul said. He made him who knew no sin to become sin. To become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's what God did for you. Paul was amazed by that. He was blown away by that. That never stopped to amaze him. It never stopped to get his attention. And he could just be talking about that God is my witness. And he would just burst out whom I serve with all that I am in the gospel of his son. Angels. Angels sinned only once. How many times have you sinned? They sinned once, they were condemned, never to be redeemed. How many times have you sinned? Angels only rebelled once. How many acts of rebellion have you committed against the God who made you, who is Lord of lords and King of kings and rules upon the throne of all thrones? Angels are more powerful than you. They're more beautiful than you. They're more glorious than you, yet the Lord Jesus didn't come to this world to save a single angel. Not a single drop of blood was shed for any angel. The Lord Jesus didn't go through every commandment and obey them for an angel. He didn't go to the cross and suffer the agony and shame for an angel But He did that for you. For wicked, rebellious, habitual sinners like you and me. That's who He came to save. Behold the motivation for Paul's heart of praise. The Gospel. Behold your motivation, Christian, to give him everything. To surrender all. All. And as I said, this is the service that goes all the way to the very core of your being because of the good news of His Son. You all know, like I do, that there are many churches who think that Christ is not enough to motivate people to worship God. So they need lights and fog machines. They need to bring in celebrities They need to offer you a new car and a luxurious building. Not bad to have a nice building. But all Paul needed was Christ. What do you need? What do you need to worship? There's a a song that that goes, it's called All Praise to Him. And the second verse says, All praise to Him whose love is seen in Christ the Son, the servant King, who left behind His glorious throne, to pay the ransom for His own. All praise to Him who humbly came to bear our sorrows, sin and shame, who lived to die, who died to rise, the all-sufficient sacrifice. That's why Paul worshipped with all that he was and all that he had. Now Paul was saying that God was his witness of a very specific and particular thing here. Of course, God is witness to everything. But Paul was making a point. He wanted to bring home a specific point. And what was that? For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that God is a witness to this, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayer. God was a witness to Paul's prayer life. He said, God knows how much I pray for you. Paul could say, he was constantly, it says without ceasing, I mention you always. Like Paul, he just said the same thing. He said it negatively, without ceasing, and then positively, always. And that wasn't an empty statement. Remember, he just called down God as his witness to testify to the truth of his prayer life for these people. And those Christians in Rome needed constant prayer. They were under constant assault by the government. They were under constant attack by the Jewish authorities. They had all kinds of persecution and tribulation. There was temptation everywhere and suffering and troubles of all kind to give in. On top of that, there was the demonic kingdom that wanted to destroy the church. And they would not spare that little flock. He knew He knew that division and discord was just around the corner. He knew that pride, sexual sin, revenge, and all manner of other things was not an impossible thing for any of these believers to fall into. And so he prayed for them constantly, Think of the mix-up of the church. They had slaves and masters in the same church. They had Jews and Gentiles in the same church. Men and women in a time when that was not normal to be in the same church. And the rich and the poor in the same church. Paul knew this is a powder keg about to explode if God does not help. So Paul kept them in prayer. And God was a witness to the truth of this. Have you ever thought about that, that God is a witness to your prayer life? God knows how often you pray. He knows how often I pray. He knows who you pray for and how often. He also knows when you say you're praying and you're not. He knows when you want people to think that you're more prayerful than you actually are. Have any of you told someone Praying for you. Did you? We get in these uh, you know, signal groups and someone shares something and you put up the praying hands. Praying for you. But actually, do you? God is a witness. He knows who you are praying for, when you are praying. Because it's easy to say praying, but are you actually doing it? Now, those of you who are really praying for others, the Lord sees that. As I said, he's a witness. He knows when you stop and you pray and you keep praying and you're consistently praying for people. But he also knows that there are many people who pretend that they're prayerful. But God knows the truth. Is that you? Do you want to appear prayerful? But God, being a witness, would say, you need to stop lying. Or you need to start start praying. Or both. Stop lying and start praying. You want to know a way you can avoid lying about your prayer life? When someone asks you to pray for them, what should you do? Pray? When? Right away. Uh, I'm going to embarrass our sister Jane. I've seen her do something in these group messages. When someone asks for prayer, she literally writes out the prayer right then and there. Now, others of you do it too, but I've seen that from the very beginning with her, and I thought, that's really encouraging. She's, because I may forget, we all may forget, but right then and there, the prayer is being prayed as the words are being written. That's a good example. That's not the only way, but the point is this. God is a witness to your prayer life. So pray in such a way where God will testify to the truth of it. The final thing that we see here is not just that God was a witness to Paul's consistent prayer for these people, but we see the overarching worldview or the theology that Paul had regarding God in answering prayer, and it's this. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I might now at last succeed in coming to you. What did he want? He wanted to come see them, right? He wanted to visit them. It's a good prayer. It's a good desire. But look at the way he framed it. He said, asking that somehow by what? By God's will. His prayers were under the sovereign will of Almighty God. He was very aware that if the Lord didn't will for Paul to go, he wasn't going anywhere. Somehow, by God's will, I might now at last succeed in coming to you. This was a man who was fully aware that the eyes and ears and presence of God was there And it didn't make him uncomfortable or terrified. It caused him to worship with joy. And he wanted something so bad that he prayed for this without ceasing, nonstop, consistently as he prayed for these people. It was a constant desire. And yet he surrendered it all to the will of God. Is that how you pray? Do you submit to the will of God as you pray for things? Or I guess a more challenging question is, do you see the will of God as best? Because sometimes you want things and God says no. And that's the will of God. Paul wanted to see the Romans, but God said not yet for years. And Paul wasn't angry with God. He wasn't upset at God. And the truth is, we can become angry at God because he doesn't give us what we think we should have. Paul wasn't praying for, a—I a, was going to say a new car, a new chariot. He wasn't praying for a stallion horse. He wasn't praying for a big palace. No, he was praying that he could go visit these Christians who are suffering so he can encourage them. That's a good desire. But sometimes when we pray for good things and God says no or not yet or wait, we can become angry with God do you become angry with God when He puts you on hold? Or when He says, not that, this. Do you think your way is better than His? It's easy to say no, but the way that we deal with disappointment says it all, right? Now, the greatest example of this is not Paul, but the one that Paul loved the most. And who is that? Jesus the lord jesus christ luke 22:39 and he came out and went as was his custom, custom to the mount of olives and the disciples followed him and when he came to the place he said to them pray that you may not enter into temptation and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed saying father If you are willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. And there appeared to Him an angel from heaven strengthening Him. This is so powerful. The angel comes to strengthen Him And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. After the angel came, after the angel strengthened him, That's when he was sweating the great drops of blood. How heavy was this load upon our Lord? How greatly did he desire to have this request answered? Yes. Three times he prayed, and the answer again and again was no, my son. No. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. Oh, sorrow upon sorrow. Now he comes and sees the very ones who were his friends. He spent three years of his life pouring it out for them in their sleep when he asked them to pray for him and with him. Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter, enter into temptation. There has never been anyone who has ever prayed so earnestly as this. There has never been anyone who trusted God as much as Christ did. There has never been anyone who suffered more or who wanted a better desire. This was a great desire that Christ had. He would never pray for something that was wrong. And there has never been anyone who has ever handled the disappointment of not being told, yes, better than the Lord Jesus. Do you see it? He totally surrendered to the position of the suffering servant. People don't believe in the Trinity because they say, look at Jesus. He's so weak. He says the Father's greater than him. He had to pray. Jesus voluntarily took the most weakest. Position, knowing that people would say all manner of things about him, he willingly did that so that we could be redeemed. What a thing. And what was he facing in that cup? The wrath of his father, the silence of heaven, the shame and the guilt of sin becoming sin for us. And yet he accepted his father's will perfectly. And because he did that, you have grace, if you are his, to handle, no, or wait with grace. We pray for a lost child and the father does not choose to save them. We pray for our church to grow, that we be given a building of our own and God says, no, I'm going to keep you small and you will be buildingless. You pray for someone who's sick to be healed and they die. You pray for your city to see revival and it just gets worse and worse. Why? All because the will of the Lord was not to bring that about. Remember, Paul kept praying. And he didn't say, well, if the Lord wills with unbelief, because that is something that people can say, right? Well, if the Lord wills, they don't really believe it. Paul kept praying this, and he kept praying it for years. And you know what? The Lord did answer his prayer. You know how he answered it? Acts twenty-eight, eleven. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead, putting in at Syracuse... We stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Potoli. There we found brothers who were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, these are the brothers from the book of Romans, Came as far as the Forum of Apicius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God. My prayers have finally been answered and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. The Lord finally answered Paul's prayer. Years later, how did he answer? Paul came as a prisoner, he came in chains. Years of praying without ceasing for the same thing, to see them, to come to them, to help them. And God says, I'm going to give it to you. You're going to come and change. And how did Paul's life end? He was executed. Where? In Rome. Paul's prayer to come to Rome was the way he was going to die. He didn't know that. Have you ever thought about that? That you might be praying for something that will ultimately bring about the end of your life. So God is saying wait because he has more for you to do on this earth. He may answer your prayer in such a way that it comes with much suffering and pain and agony as Paul was in chains thrown into the Maritime prison there where all the sewage of Rome flowed and they would once the the, the prison got crowded enough, they would open up the sewage and drown the prisoners in the filth of Rome? That's where Paul was imprisoned? You might be asking for something that he will eventually answer, but it may be in a way that comes with much pain and faith-stretching circumstances. So the point is, brothers and sisters, as you pray, we don't know the secret will of the Lord and we have to trust him. He's a witness. He knows all. He knows what's best. He knows what's best for you. He knows how long you've wanted this. And when he says no, it's not because he's unkind to you. It's because his will is perfect and he is working out the things that will bring about his greatest glory and your greatest good. Amen. Father, we do thank You that You are a witness. We thank You that You know all. We thank You that You see all. We thank You that You know how much we love you, how much we desire to be pleasing to you. You know how much we we strain forth in this narrow road that is narrow and there are not many people on it and it is hard. You know, Lord, how much we press in to see your face. You know the sacrifices. You know the effort. You know the suffering. You know the persecution. You know the tribulation. You know how we are attacked. You see it all and you are not unable or unwilling to keep your promise to reward us openly for what we do in secret for your name. And Father, for those who are here who are lost, you see what they do in secret as well. And the day of judgment is coming when all masks will be unveiled. Please, Father, grant them repentance that they may repent and believe. In Jesus' name, amen.